This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com and the Big Change Program with Josh Lajani. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a loving and limitless life. So we've got a couple things to talk about before we get to today's show. First is, if you find yourself self-sabotaging your healthy eating, your exercise, your meditation, your whatever habits, you get started, and then almost immediately you kind of fall off the wagon, I have a report for you. It's the Stop Self-Sabotage Report, which is harder to say than you might think. And you can get it for free at plantyourself.com slash sabotage. Second thing is, I got an email from a guy who's going to be appearing on the podcast probably in February or March of next year. His name is Jamie Friesen. He is a dynamo. He's a young guy, but uh, very entrepreneurial. And he emailed me to see if I wanted to try a bunch of natural vegan products like shampoo and stuff like that. And if you've seen a picture of me, you know that I'm not really a shampoo or conditioner user. But I am enjoying the deodorant, the toothpaste, uh, the body wash, and the bar soap. Now, if you're starting to think that that's how cheap I am, that you can get a mention on the podcast just by, just by sending me some grooming products, there's, there's a lot more. Uh, they have a really cool vision for the company, including a large regenerative farm where they produce all the material. Uh, they're Canadian, which immediately makes me love them. And they have uh, their head of PR is Crowley the pig, who has a couple of legs that don't work. And uh, somebody made for him a, uh, a kind of a walking crate that allows him to get around. And so heart's in the right place. And they have a Kickstarter campaign that they are looking to, to raise some funds to get product out the door so that they can make a splash. So if you're interested, check out the show notes for today's episode, which is plantyourself.com slash 244. You can also just go directly to naturalveganproducts.com. You can check out their stuff. You can go to the Kickstarter there. There's going to be, by the time you hear this, there'll be a week left. They've already uh, tripled their goal for the campaign. And if you contribute to it, you can get some nice uh, vegan, all natural personal care products. There's actually a bunch of videos of these guys actually eating and drinking their stuff, which Probably I wouldn't recommend, but uh, they do put their money where their mouth is. So um, naturalveganproducts.com, you can check out their Kickstarter, and let me know what you think. I'm not affiliated with these guys financially in any way. They were just charming and, and go-getters, and I like their vision and I like their mission. So let's see what we can do to help them out. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode with one of the huge stars of the plant-based movement in medicine, Dr. Scott Stoll. So the first thing to know about Scott is that he was a walk-on to the U.S. bobsled team and made it to the 1994 Winter Olympics. And he did it without ever having been on a bobsled before. So that really speaks to Scott's belief in you can do anything you set your mind to. And that's a good thing because Scott has made it his life mission to transform the healthcare industry into one that practices actual healthcare rather than just disease management and mitigation and all the stuff that we know about. He is a co-founder of the Plantrition Project, which is doing a tremendous amount around medical education, about showing doctors a different way of doing things, and showing doctors who've already embraced that different way of doing things how they can actually make a living while doing those new, different, better things. The other thing that surprised me about Scott when we started talking 
is sort of how gentle and kind and present and and loving he is. And I guess when I read a resume and I see how sort of hard driving and accomplished someone is and how much they've how much they've done and pushed back against the powers that be, I kind of expect them to be kind of, you know, type A, alpha, gruff, let's get this done. And Scott was just the opposite, which is a really good lesson and reminder for me, because I like to be sort of uh, present and, and loving and, and flowing and realizing that that's not something that I need to change if I want to change the world. So I'll see you at the other end, and I predict that this conversation will make you extremely positive and hopeful about the kind of changes that are coming down the pike when we've got someone like Scott on our team. So without further ado, Dr. Scott Stoll, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Hi, Howard. It is such an honor to be with you and with this uh, amazing audience, and I really am honored to be a part of this um, this Plant Pure podcast. I, I love the work that you're all doing and the influence that you have brought uh, upon this country, and uh, so it's a great honor to spend the, the today with you. Thank you so much. Well, right back at you. So uh, before we get into all of the amazing um, things you're doing and the projects, and you, you're kind of like the, the plant-based movement's, you know, all-star project coordinator, creator, and manager. Like there's, there's so many things you're doing that have grown so much bigger than you. Um, before we get to that, I'd love to hear kind of your, your story. I know you're a, you're a former athlete. Um, and, you know, how, how did you get to be plant-based? How did you get to medicine? You know, all that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, I, you know, I always love, like you, I'm sure to do too, asking people that question in the plant-based world, because there's so many um, interesting stories of how people find their way into plant-based uh, nutrition, and especially as healthcare practitioners changing their practices, and they're always inspiring. So I appreciate that opportunity. Um, yeah, just a, a quick background. I, you know, I grew up in a family that appreciated health, and I think back then did the best they could to try and make things healthy. I remember my dad making transitions out of chocolate cake and starting to use carob and, you know, other alternative sweeteners. And we went along with it. <laughs> the chocolate cake didn't taste quite as good, but it was still my dad's vision to try and make things healthier. And he did a lot of baking. My mom cooked and, you know, so I grew up always, I think, with kind of a, a, a basic appreciation and value for healthy cooking although we still were unhealthy looking back in it retrospectively, you know, being influenced by the Western culture and still going to McDonald's and eating ice cream and drinking lots of milk and suffering some of the consequences, you know, even as a young man having a lot of acne from that milk and not understanding that and taking antibiotics to try and get rid of it. So, uh, you know, I faced some of those consequences, um, even in my youth, not knowing what the problem was and seeking solutions from healthcare that really didn't solve the problem. It was a temporary solution and, and also brought some harm into my life, probably from injuring my microbiome. Mm. I, was an, I was an athlete um, and loved athletics. I ran track through college and I happened to be uh, watching the 1992 Olympics with a friend of mine. And I said to my friend, Doug, I said, you know, Doug, I've always loved bobsledding. And it's something I've always wanted to do since I was a little boy. I used to watch bobsledding on television and I would go outside with my little sled and imagine that I was bobsledding in Switzerland at the world championships. And so my friend Doug is one of those wonderful can-do people. 
And he said, well, let's just call and find out how you try out for the bobsled team. So <laughs> the next day he's on the phone and he calls the Olympic Training Center and said, you know, how does somebody try out for the bobsled team? And so they invited us down to the Olympic Training Center and we took a, a sprinting and jumping test down there and scored well enough that they invited us to Lake Placid, New York in the summer for the national push championships. And they fly in maybe 70 people from around the country, plus the, the last 92 Olympic team. And they have a little bobsled on rails and you push this bobsled for time and in push-offs uh, during the course of a week. And uh, so I went and pushed. And before I knew it, I was one of the top nine. And I had made the World Cup team, uh, never having seen a bobsled nor been in a bobsled. And uh, <laughs> went on this wonderful adventure before medical school of traveling around the world and bobsledding. And uh, eventually made it to the 1994 Olympic team. And so I, I had this... Uh, you know, incredible moment of walking into the opening ceremonies and remembering that just two years before I was in my basement in Fort Collins, Colorado, watching the 1992 Olympic opening ceremonies. And it was uh, it was such a, a great blessing and amazing opportunity in my life. And I still work as a physician with the bobsled team and, and um, have worked with them in many different capacities as a doctor and also try to influence their their nutrition. And uh, See, just a quick side note, Irene. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, it just it seems like if that's like sort of an origin story, it seems like it kind of ruins you for pessimism. <laughs> you know? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's right. You know, it, it really is. not it? it just it teaches you so many wonderful things in life that it, it's OK to pursue your dreams. It's OK to try out. It's OK to, you know, ask those important questions like, why can't I? And uh, end up pursue it because you never know, you know, had my friend not taken the initiative to say, well, why can't we try out? Maybe we'll make the team. I would never have had that amazing experience. So I learned so much from my friend, Doug. And it's, I think it's just one of those, those poignant reminders in life to say, well, why can't I? And actually to go for it. <laughs> See, I've always wondered about that when I watch bobsled or luge, because, you know, it doesn't look like they're doing anything. And I know that's not true. <laughs> But when you tell a story like that, yeah. I'm like maybe it's not that hard, you know, maybe you, you just have some sort of innate skill or there's not like what, what did you tell yourself when you when you got there and being a complete novice being in the top nine? Like, how did you explain that to yourself? Yeah, you know, I looking back on it, it was um, I, I remember watching uh, one of the little vignettes of a bobsledder from Colorado. And I saw Joe, Joe Sawyer, and I watched him and I said, well, if he can do it, I can do it. And I think that's like one of those important lessons to learn too, that, you know, if you start to believe you can do it, you're probably capable of a lot, capable of a lot more than you realize. So I went into the bobsled push championships, you know, believing that it, I could probably do it because I had seen somebody else and realized that I had the same skill set that he did. So the belief system, I believe, really gave me um, an advantage when I walked in to be confident rather than fearful um, at the push trials. And, you know, the skill sets of most bobsledders are, you know, they're sprinters uh, from track and field or they're, you know, wide receivers or running backs from from football. And so there were people there from the National Football League. There were, you know, NCAA track and field championships, um, uh, you know, amazing people. I wasn't either of those things, but I had the belief that, you know what, I, I have the same skill set so I can do it. 
And I think that that's what helped propel me through and to finish finish really well is that uh, I did have skills, but I also had strong belief that it was possible. Mm-hmm. And I know, you know I'm, I'm getting way ahead of myself, but I, I can just imagine how that mindset um, got woven into the immersions that you take people through, right? Where, where the idea of, I, gee, I can do this. I can get healthy. I can lose weight. I can take control of my eating where that's kind of the big issue as opposed to the nuts and bolts details of what to eat. Yeah, you're right. And yeah, we'll jump ahead because you're, you're absolutely right. It all weaves together. One of the things that we start our immersions uh, with each time that we do one is taking people back to who they are and why they're there. Um, because it's very easy to get lost in the, the how and the what of, of you know, making a lifestyle transition, you know, what do we need to eat and how do we make it work? But I've often found that if you don't understand really who you are and why you're going to do this, that eventually the the what and how become, um, you know, burdensome and you lose the vision and the passion behind it and you slip back into the, you know, those old patterns and behaviors and habits that are comfortable or, you know, helping to pacify some pain in life. So we always start helping people to know who they are because it's that that core identity that is really important. And that's what I kind of understood when I was bobsledding. I understood, you know, who I was and that this was a lifelong passion, a lifelong dream, and that I had skills and abilities that would make me successful and that I could make the team. And I, my why for that was this, you know, very clear vision in my mind of myself walking into the opening ceremonies and competing at the Olympics. And it was a, it was a very clear vision that, that brought up emotion and passion within me. And that's what we try to do at the immersions. We try to help people uh, understand a, a new why for life, because we've often found that people that have gone through many rounds of diets and and suffered a lot of defeat and having the world tell them that they're failures and facing sickness and illness and some of the challenges of living in western culture have lost vision and dreams and a why a a passionate why for their lives so we really help them you know to, to work through that in the beginning to understand that you know that the healthy lifestyle choices that they're going to make are going to be fuel for them to help achieve their why and their purpose and their passion and their dreams. Uh, And in that way, they kind of get pulled through a lifestyle transition rather than pushing against the resistance uh, of culture and family and friends and some of the challenges of making a lifestyle transformation. Gotcha. That's beautiful. So um, were you similarly passionate as a young person about going into medicine? When, When did that bug bite? Yeah, when I look back at it as a one of my favorite books when I was in grade school, and I must have read it, you know, 15 or 20 times with this little book called The Athlete's Body. And uh, it went through all the physiology and some of the anatomy of an athlete's body. And I read it until I memorized it. And uh, yeah, I can remember dissecting fish that I caught. And, you know, it's, I was always interested in that aspect. But I think, um, you know, Moving from high school into college, I was a little fearful of the workload of going into medicine. So I had started out with a vision of, you know, getting a degree in um, nutritional science and um, biochemistry. And 
as I was going through my second and third year of college and thinking about what I really wanted to do and what I was passionate about, I, I found that my passions really led me back toward medicine. And then I, I realized that I wouldn't be happy or satisfied if I wasn't in medicine. You know, both the science aspect was so intellectually stimulating and then the the humanity aspect of it and caring for people and helping transform people's lives was such a natural fit with who I was that I, um, the workload didn't seem like it was going to be burdensome, but actually joyful in the process. And so about my third year of um, undergraduate, I decided to pursue medicine and, uh, you know, tightened up my belt and went forward with pre-med and the MCATs and pursued uh, medicine and haven't regretted it to this day and can't imagine doing something different with my life. Mm. So, so if you, you know, if you love the science and, and seeking truth and exploration and you sounds like you really loved med school, what, like what, how did plant-based stuff get interjected in there? Because I know there's, there's a, there's a real tension point for a lot of people between, you know, the medical establishment and nutrition. And what, you know, I know you're, you're, um, interest in the plantrition project is it's largely about we have to bridge that gap. How did how did that gap appear to you when it first occurred? Yeah, I was practicing medicine after my residency, just as I had been taught, seeing patients, asking them the right questions, trying to find a diagnosis, writing prescriptions, doing procedures. And I had heard my patients continually tell me the same thing, that they were falling apart. With a, a laugh and a smile, they would say, oh, Dr. Stoll, I'm falling apart. Uh, I would go to a family get-together, and I would hear family members talking about falling apart. I'd hear my parents, you know, friends saying they were falling apart. I just thought it was a natural consequence of aging, that that's what happened. And that's why medicine was in place, was to help people mitigate some of the problems and falling apart and use procedures and medications to, um, to help minimize pain and the symptoms. But then there was a day in my practice, a woman was sitting on my exam table and she said, Dr. Stoll, can't you help me? I'm falling apart. And I just asked the right question. I, I said to her, you know, everybody tells me that they're falling apart. What does falling apart really mean to you? And like so many physicians, I had already anticipated her answer because I was looking at her past medical history, her medication list, her surgical history list, her family history. Um, and she started in a place that I didn't expect. She said, my marriage is falling apart because my husband is exhausted. He's been caring for me for years and we don't have a, a real relationship anymore. I haven't been able to travel to see my grandchildren in three years because I can't leave the city and I, my health is so inconsistent. I can't make the trip. I can't attend church anymore. Uh, we're facing financial bankruptcy because of the cost of my health care. I'm depressed and my friends have stopped coming around and I, I feel lonely. And then she said with tears running down her face, can you help me? And it was one of those moments in life when you feel completely helpless. You know, as a doctor, we're trained to help, you know, have answers, to be the solution, to have something, you know, ready on the tip of our pen to solve a problem. And I sat there and I had absolutely nothing. I thought back through my medical education. I thought back through my my education and residency, and nobody had prepared me to answer that question and to help somebody put their life back together again. 
I could write a prescription, I could order tests, I could make a diagnosis, but I didn't know how to help this person. And I soon realized that if she was asking that question, that all these other people that had similarly told me that they were facing this falling apart problem were likely facing many of the same challenges that I needed to try and find a solution. My passion was to help people transform their lives and, and get the most out of their lives and to fulfill their calling. And um, I didn't know how to do that. So it sent me on a, a research project where I started reading, you know, first diet books. I thought certainly one of these doctors who's written a diet book had an uh, answer to this problem. And I soon realized that from Atkins to Zone, they all were talking about weight loss None of them were talking about solving disease or reversing disease and helping put people's lives back together again. So can, can the, I interrupt you the, for, for yeah, a second? Because <clears throat> yeah. what strikes me is the, the, the real miracles of this story are a couple fold. One is that you were willing to ask that question instead of knowing what people meant by falling apart. But the second was that you felt like this was your responsibility. You know, I could easily imagine a doctor listening to that and thinking, you know, it was as if this woman is saying, well, you know, my pipes are, are bursting, my toilet's blocked. And you'd say, oh, well, you don't need a doctor. You need a plumber. Like you could right. easily you could easily have punted. Right. And said, yeah. well, you need a therapist. You need a financial planner. You need a book on etiquette. Like what made you think, OK, this is in my bailiwick. Yeah, it's a great question. And I, when I, I looked at the one of the root causes of her problems, and that's something that I've always been interested in, is like finding the root cause. Because if you can solve the root cause, many of the symptoms of the problems go away. And when I looked at her life, the root, one of the primary root causes for many of the manifestations of her falling apart uh, was the disease in her life. She was sick. She had, you know, hypertension, she had heart disease, she had had a diagnosis of cancer, she had, you know, multiple medications and side effects. And I saw that, you know, the the illnesses in her life were causing this incredible, you know, socioeconomic relational challenge. <clears throat> and that if I could go dig down and pull out that root and figure out how to solve the problem of the illness in her life, that many of those socioeconomic, relational, interpersonal problems would resolve. And so I felt like that's why it was my responsibility, um, because it was it was right there in the heart of medicine. Gotcha. And roughly what year was this? Wow. So that was um, that was uh, almost 15 years ago now. It's about 2002, 2003. That's about right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so so you decide you, you went looking at nutritionists. I did. Right? Or, or, or diet doctors, I guess. Yeah, that's a good diet doctors. That's good. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh -huh. yeah, what made, I, what made I, you look I, there? What made you think, oh, you know, diet and nutrition as opposed to, you know, there was lots of other stuff around at that point. There was... Um, you know, Larry Dossie and, you know, Healing Prayer and lots of new age stuff. What made you gravitate towards food? Yeah, I, you know, I think some of it goes back to those parts of our history. Um, you know, looking back, growing up in a family where I realized that food was important. And, you know, we'd had conversations about sugar growing up. My 
nutritional education and undergraduate, although it was insufficient and um, incomplete, it still was a foundation to recognize that food has some power and influence in our lives. And, you know, I'd seen that um, just the, uh, at the most basic level that when somebody is obese or overweight, uh, that those are that obesity and overweight uh, condition is related to a host of other medical conditions. And so I guess it was those several components that pointed me back in that direction. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So so after looking at uh, at Atkins and uh, Barry Sears, you did, I guess you, you, you obviously didn't give up. Um, That's right. And I actually, you know, one of the other things that was popular at that time was uh, and still is today it was age management medicine. Um, and I had seen, you know, pictures of that, that gentleman, he's on the in flight magazine still today, you know, he's about mid 70s and has the body of a 25 year old. And I thought, well, maybe that, you know, is part of the solution. So I got certified in age management medicine, and realized that was not a solution for the general population It had it was expensive, there were side effects associated with it. And uh, it was not it didn't lead to a reversal of disease. So I finally went back and just started reading articles online, you know, around nutrition. And I'd started to see the common thread that the more whole plant foods that people ate, the healthier they became. Um, and in that process, I came across, you know, the China study, like so many of us were influenced by T. Collins' amazing work. I came across uh, Eat to Live by Joel Furman, and I went to spend some time with uh, Joel Furman, and I saw his patients were getting healthier as they got older. And it was one of those aha moments when you realize that uh, maybe my education in medical school and residency uh, was incomplete, and there's much more to learn uh, to being a physician, to really helping people to transform their lives and break free the bondage of disease. Mm. So how did you begin to uh, incorporate these insights into your own practice? What we did first, uh, you know, I, I have to always give my wife credit. She was probably, um, you know, eight to 10 years ahead of us. Uh, when I was in medical school, you know, she had um, been reading some books by Gary Knoll. And she had said to me, you know, I think we really need to transition over to vegetarian vegan. And, you know, coming out of the Olympics and thinking I needed milk and meat to be strong, I said, oh, but I'm going to lose all my muscle. I'm not going to be strong and healthy if I transition over to vegetables. So she was so kind and said, OK, and continued to make me meet and patiently waited for me to come along and would leave books, you know, around the house and I would read them. But, you know, it's if I had learned to listen to my wife uh, back then, I would have been much further ahead. But um, she was really kind of the initiator in our family. But, you know, first we, we initiated this uh, change in our own family. We changed what we ate. We changed what our children ate. Uh, we learned how to make the food. And uh, shortly thereafter, I would take out my prescription pad and I would use my prescription pad to write recipes for breakfast, lunch and dinner, for smoothies. Um, and, uh, and I saw amazing transformations in the life of my patients um, in a very short period of time and realized that. Uh, this is this is one of the secrets of lasting health is the food we eat. And it was far more um, powerful than I ever imagined and in, in transforming a life. Wow. So that really uh, contradicts the narrative that I've heard from so many doctors that, well, my patients just want a pill. 
They don't want to take responsibility. They won't do it. They they won't be compliant. Right? You you've you found that there was yes. at least a percentage of them that were were hungry for this. Yes, I, I, that's exactly right. Um, and I, I learned as a physician that um, you know I had more influence uh, over my patients' decisions than I recognized. And I also realized that as a physician, I would often influence them um, negatively by what I spoke over them. Uh, one of the common things that I heard in training and heard many partners say, would say occasionally, and, and I feel bad about that now, is that I would say to them, well, this is a really bad case of whatever you have. It's not reversible. You're stuck with it for life. And, you know, there's no other option but to take, take the medication. And what that does for the patient, it steals away any hope of anything different in the future. And if they hear something like that, and then, you know, I follow up with, well, you know, maybe changing your diet will help. You know, if there is no hope, they're not likely to be inclined to make a lifestyle transition and to undergo some of the challenges that, you know, inevitably come when we change what we eat and how we live. Um, and, and I realized that, um, you know, a hopeless uh, person is, is not likely to be motivated. And the, the power of my words um, and my own belief systems could inspire hope uh, and belief in a patient that uh, even came in hopeless. And I started to see that when I changed the way that I spoke to my patients and I started to speak with belief and conviction and hope, people that I didn't even expect to make a lifestyle transition would willingly take it on. And I, I soon realized that, you know, that short 10-minute or 15-minute conversation in a physician's uh, office can be radically transformational because patients put a lot of um, a tremendous amount of, of uh, hope and credibility on what their doctor tells them. And um, so it was, I think you're exactly right when you point that out. It is so important for us to understand, you know, how we speak to patients and what we say that, that uh, enables them to make um, a transition in their life. Yeah, it sounds like it's much more than the words you say. Because, you know, there's other doctors who could say those words, but if they didn't have the energetic conviction behind those words, they they wouldn't get their same results, even if they were reading the, you know, a script that you wrote for them, right? It was your own experience and, and your own willingness to do the research that gave, and, and your own spending time with Dr. Furman and seeing the outcomes firsthand that gave you the confidence that allowed you to speak the words. Yeah, that's exactly right, Howard. It's it is the people we can say the words, um, but you know the verbal communication is really only ten percent of communication. Um, you know, ninety percent is you know what we believe, what we feel, the hope, the um, you know the, the nonverbal communication of our body. All of those things convey the message um, in a very profound way to patients. And I think that what had happened to me is that I became, I, I came to a place where I absolutely believed that this was a solution for people that could give them their lives back. Um, I believe that I could help them walk that out and transform their lives. 
um, and believed that it was a solution. Um, and so I think that they, they heard the words, but they experienced the love and the hope that I had towards them and the willingness that I, was, um, that I had to come alongside of them and make that change. So as, as you transformed your practice to you know, writing scripts for smoothies and stuff, um, what did you <laughs> discover that they needed to be able to, to transition and to maintain it? Yeah, I, you know, like I said earlier, they really, um, people needed hope, they needed inspiration, they needed vision. Um, and then they also needed some real practical assistance. They needed accountability and they needed support and community. Um, and all of those elements lead to a lasting, sustainable lifestyle change. Uh, I think one of the mistakes that I may have made early was believing that um, information and knowledge was enough. And, you know, just giving information and giving knowledge without providing, um, you know, some kind of a community and support, um, some level of accountability, um, you know, some uh, assistance in helping them to see the vision uh, and also um, being supportive through the ups and downs. And I had seen that so many people through like a dietary system had an idea of success and failure around making a dietary change. And if they failed, they were quick to throw out the diet because they said it just didn't work for them. So I actually had to learn how to teach them that this is not a system of success or failure. And in fact, in the process of making a change or in the process of pursuing something great, whether it was, you know, for me going back to the Olympics or anything, there's going to be periods of time when you're not successful, when you don't do things correctly, and it's okay because it's a part of the process. And to be okay and accept that, you know, you may have some some days when you fail, you may have some days when you eat a meal that's not very healthy, and it's okay because it's really about the next bite, it's about the next meal and continuing forward toward that greater vision. Uh, and I think that, you know, those are the elements that I learned through the years that really helped to equip people to make a sustainable lifestyle change. So were you able to create community among your patients? Yeah, I really worked to do that, um, you know, through um, not only online opportunities, but just even locally. Uh, and one of the things that I have found through the years that really helps to support sustainable change is a community dinner. Uh, when people can join together on a regular basis and share a potluck dinner together to talk, to encourage one another, and you know, it's a level of accountability, just showing up you know, with other people that are making a lifestyle change, to have a place to ask questions, a safe place to go, you know, that can help to fuel change um, in a community. And in the absence of community, it can be very difficult because at our current place um, in our culture, you know, the culture has a tremendous influence anywhere we go. And um, if you don't have that place to come back to where you can find support and encouragement, um, it can be much more difficult to make a go of it on your own. Hmm. It was like the, the community dinner is a kind of booster shot against the, uh, the, the pathogens of, of culture. <laughs> That's a good way to put it, Howard. That's right. I've actually even seen some uh, scientific articles that describe the Western lifestyle and diet uh, in terms of like a viral vector as it has gone out across the world and infected all the nations of the earth. So <laughs> I think that's right. The community dinner is, is a booster shot. <laughs> yeah. So um, 
What was what was next? I know you know you're involved in some very large national international projects. How, how did you grow from having your own private practice locally to getting involved in some of these bigger things? Yeah, my um, you know as we were as I was practicing, um, I recognized there was a need to maybe try and teach um, you know more people. Uh, some of the basic principles and things we were learning. So my wife and I decided that we were going to do a one-day health immersion at DeSales University here in the Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania. And so we we rented a conference room. We worked with the kitchen over at DeSales to produce a healthy lunch. Um, we set up, got a bunch of vendors to come, and we had about 150 people that came to our, our little one-day health immersion and it was like putting a flag in the ground uh, for my wife and I and saying, you know, we're going to move forward. We're going to support people. We're going to try and change our community. And we're, you know, this is the flag that we're planting that says we're here and we're going to make a change. And out of that, you know, one day event, um, I met some people that were um, doing health immersions. I was asked, I invited Joel Furman to come speak and he eventually asked me to join the uh, Whole Foods Scientific um, Advisory Board, which I participated in for a number of years. And out of that, I was asked to um, to host one of their week-long health immersions, uh, working with the most unhealthy employees at Whole Foods. And, um, you know, out of doing immersions for a period of time and seeing the amazing transformations that happen in a week, but also recognizing how difficult it is for people to go back home and work with their doctors I had said one evening at dinner time to my friend Tom Dunham, who's a, a partner in the health emergence, I said, you know, we really need to start a conference to help educate physicians um, so that, you know, all these people that are coming to health emergence will have a doctor that will support them in their lifestyle change. And uh, Tom's another can-do person like my friend Doug King. I've been very blessed with some of those people in my life. And Tom said, all right, well, let's do it. And we had no idea what we're getting ourselves into. And thankfully, we were rescued along the way by a good friend that's now a partner, Susan Benegas, who understood marketing and helped <laughs> us market the conference. And we held, held our first conference in Naples after the health immersion. And we had about 180 people that came. And uh, it, it was really an amazing opportunity to connect with healthcare practitioners from around the world and and begin um, creating a place for them to to learn and to connect to, to plant-based nutrition. And uh, we just hosted our last conference uh, in September of this year, and we had a thousand healthcare practitioners from 25 countries, uh, which is so exciting to us because we see that, you know, each of those healthcare practitioners will touch hundreds to thousands of lives, and uh, and really provide opportunities to to change and transform, you know, many many families around the world. And that's the Plantrition Project, right? Yeah, the not-for-profit is called the Plantrition Project. And our conference is called the International Plant-Based Nutrition Healthcare Conference, uh, pbnhc.com, plantbasednutritionhealthcare.com. And it is a, it's a wonderful conference with lots of like-minded people and uh, amazing lectures and great food. Of course, we work with the hotels to provide breakfast, lunch, and dinner and amazing food. And one of our visions for that is not just to come and learn from speakers, but that at breakfast, lunch, and dinner, people from around the world can sit around the table, um, enjoy a great great meal, and find that community support, collaboration, vision casting that's really important for a movement to move forward. So when you first um, invited the people and you had 180 people come, what did you think the needs were of, of the physicians? Did you think they needed education? 
Um, they needed convincing. They needed, um, you know, financial practice models. What, what, did, what did you hear from them and what did you assume? Yes, early on, I, I believed that there needed to be a conference that was unbiasedly um, plant-based, that we say, you know, we believe that plant-based nutrition uh, should be a foundational cornerstone of a healthcare, pra- a healthcare practice. And that in, in that bias and that belief, we're going to create a conference with lectures, uh, scientific information that helps to show the scientific underpinnings of whole food plant-based diet all the way down to the molecular level so that, you know, even a physician that is not quite certain about uh, the benefits of this would be interested to come and learn about, you know, the physiology and the science and the biochemistry of nutrition and reversing disease. We also believe that uh, whole food plant-based nutrition um, is the best way to reverse disease. And so our intention was to invite speakers and support research to demonstrate that whole food plant-based nutrition can reverse disease. Um, third, we recognized that there was a, a real need for a community uh, within the whole food plant-based healthcare um, movement that you know, doctors and nurses and PAs and nurse practitioners and health coaches needed an opportunity to come together, to have conversations, to strategize, to collaborate, to find encouragement, and that, um, you know, a conference provides um, that opportunity uh, once a year. Again, it's like a booster shot. You know, it uh, gives you a, a shot of energy and, uh, and vision for the year. Um, later, we recognized uh, as we went into the, you know, the future conferences, the real need for, um, you know, the application uh, aspect of uh, whole food plant-based nutrition in a healthcare practice. And that, you know, you're, it's really a disruptive, um, you know, information technology because it, it goes against many of the, you know, the paradigms of a traditional healthcare practice. It certainly is difficult to find reimbursement for it. Um, and so physicians and healthcare practitioners are always asking that question, well, how can I make this work in my practice and how can I make an income? And so we've really worked to, you know, modify our content at the conferences to include, um, you know, real practical application, working with, you know, administrators, uh, making this financially feasible, feasible and solvent uh, in a practice um, and how to work even through challenging cases and and challenging um, diseases. So, you know, we, we're trying to I think it's an ever evolving process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what, what have you found in terms of people being able to innovate? Because it, it sounds like right now we're it's sort of a wild west of, uh, of successful practice models. You know, people kind of I've heard things about people sort of, you know, figuring out how to play the uh, the insurance codes to turn dinners into into, you know, things you can bill for or concierge models or community models like. How, how much progress have we made as a as a community in terms of, um, you know, bo- both um, sort of fiddling around the edges to just kind of, you know, eke, eke out a living and also to to innovate like game changer models for for patients and communities? 
Yeah, I think your analogy is absolutely right. It is a little bit like the wild, wild west right now. Uh, you know, it's. I think we're we're still working to figure those things out. I think we know more now than we did five years ago. And I think there are some reimbursement models using codes that work. And one of those that we have seen work very effectively, uh, not only for billing and reimbursement, but really for patient care, um, are the group models. You know, those are codes that are recognized by Medicare um, that uh, will take a group of patients that are facing a similar um, disease like diabetes, put them into a group and allow them to undergo a group visit that may include a physician visit, uh, a nurse visit, a nutritionist, dietitian, a health coach, um, all working, you know, both individually in a group to guide that, that group of people toward disease uh, remission and healing. And that little group pulls together, they develop re relationships, uh, support and encouragement, and they kind of go through the process together. And so it seems to be a really effective and efficient way um, to at least work within the system currently. I know that there's always a tendency to try and find codes to make things work. And, uh, you know, through the years as a practicing physician, I've seen many of those come and go. Uh, eventually, you know, health insurance companies uh, recognize that, you know, people are, are trying to use these things maybe um, not in the way they were designed and they, they close those down. So any of those may be short-lived. And then certainly people are looking at concierge and, and cash-based practices, which, um, you know, are working, but it's one of the challenges. And I think, you know, for the heart of many of us in um, plant-based nutrition is that, you know, some people are excluded that don't have the finances to access those things. And so we're, we're trying to, you know, understand ways to reach every aspect of the socioeconomic um, patient population to bring this message because it is so important and so transformational. Um, and especially, you know, the lower income populations um, and the, you know, that really need this information may not be able to access it if it is only a cash-based practice. That's where I think these group codes can be a, a very efficient way. But there's a lot of work to be done. But the good news is that there's lots of uh, very brilliant physicians that are actively working. We have um, recently, uh, there's a group that started at the American College of Lifestyle Medicine that I was asked to be a part of called the um, Lifestyle Medicine Economic Research Consortium, which is looking at, um, you know, the economics of plant-based nutrition and healthcare, and then creating some research projects and strategies to try and infiltrate, you know, traditional healthcare with uh, lifestyle medicine and make it financially solvent. So the good news is there's more coming as uh, more and more people are, are looking at this. And eventually, you know, I think we all recognize that the current healthcare system is not sustainable um, and that there has to be a switch um, to reward physicians and healthcare practitioners for keeping people healthy and not the current disease-based model, which is rewarding people for volume and procedures. Um, so I'm really hopeful that eventually that uh, that will be the case. Right. As, as you were talking about, you know, the insurance companies kind of get wise to the fact that you're using their code. It, it struck me as insane that they're like, hey, you, you know, you can't help people get well. That's not that's not how we designed this thing. That's right. It really is insane when you recognize what they um, what they might try to do with that. You're right. That's right. Don't you know, stop reversing disease, you know, and another part of it, I, I had a, you know, another one of those aha moments this last year, I was visiting um, 
the headquarters of a very large, uh, well-known insurance company, talking with some of the upper-level C-suite executives. And um, one of them was very honest, and he said, listen, I just have to tell you that our health insurance company is is not really interested in reversing diabetes. And I said, well, how can that be? You know, look, look at the, the lives that are transformed and the cost savings. He said, well, we're a publicly traded company. You know, we're always worried about next quarter earnings. And you have to realize that the way the health insurance company is set up, we make more money when somebody goes from pre-diabetic to diabetic because of some of the pharmaceutical um, uh, reimbursement. So he said there are accountants and executives at the top that know that if we transition to reversing diabetes, we're going to lose money. Our quarter, quarterly earnings will decrease and we'll face the scrutiny and uh, consequences on Wall Street. So he said, I understand where you're coming from, but you know it's just not what we're interested in. And I, I walked out of that health insurance meeting, you know, out the front doors of this building that is you know, granite from floor to ceiling with big banners in the entryway that say, you know, you know, our, your health is important to us and pictures of people running and exercising. And I thought, you know, um, the health insurance industry is not going to be part of the solution anytime soon. So we need to look for other avenues. And one of those other avenues that I believe is important is self-insured companies. I think that is really one of the places where we can have a tremendous influence um, in changing, you know, the insurance availability for for members um, of a self-insured company. Right, because they, they don't have the same conflicts of interest. Their, their bottom line is the same as yours. And I, I assume there's models in which, um, you know, you you take a piece of their savings as opposed to we get paid to do wellness or insurance, regardless of how that affects your bottom line. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that would be a win-win for everyone. You're absolutely right. So I want to ask you a little bit about the emergence, because that's that's kind of how I heard about you from uh, from your your writing partner, uh, Mylon Ross, who yes. uh, for folks who who haven't hit, listened to his pod, you know interview with me or read his book or heard his story anywhere, was um, morbidly obese very, very unhappy and sick and came to one of, I guess, your seven day immersion and, and totally turned his life around. Um, what, yeah, what, what uh, I mean, you know, he's, he's a great example, but uh, kind of what, what did you start seeing in the immersion that in the seven day things that, uh, you know, that made you hopeful and, and how, how did you decide how to, um, you know, set, set up the agenda for, for the week. Yeah. You know, I was so blessed to be asked by John Mackey to host one of their health immersions. And, um, you know, it's, it wasn't something new. Uh, Nathan Pritikin started doing this back in the 1970s. John McDougall started his 10 day immersions, you know, decade before. And, uh, John Mackey continued that vision. And, uh, it was such an amazing opportunity for me to experience um, how powerful food can change somebody's life in just a week. And uh, one of the things that, you know, we saw during that week is that uh, we have to discontinue uh, and reduce medications almost on a daily basis for people because their body responds so quickly to healthy food. And it's really eye-opening to see that somebody can abuse their body for decades and that just one week of healthy food can uh, minimize many of those effects of, you know, hundreds or thousands of meals uh, that were unhealthy. 
So it's been really, really fun for us to to see that profound effect of food. Um, and I think we've learned through the years uh, as we have transitioned and, and worked with people in these health immersions. We've been doing them for almost nine years now, um, most of the time twice a year, um, just recently once a year. And, you know, I think what I have seen is that so many people come in and they are um, sick, they have failed, you know, multiple diets through the years, <clears throat> they don't have hope, their physicians have not encouraged them, they come in uh, very reticent uh, and somewhat resistant to making changes. Um, and I think, um, you know, a, they are skeptical that this is actually going to work. So I've, I've learned that early on, I have to uh, gain their trust and, uh, and inspire hope um, in order for them to make a lasting lifestyle change. I, I'm just remembering the story of a, a woman that came one year and she brought with her a dozen donuts in her suitcase. And uh, she, you know, she was thinking, well, I'm going to this health immersion, but I don't think I can make it through this entire week without eating a donut every day. And she came in and, uh, you know, during the first evening we have dinner and I, I try to give them kind of a visionary uh, short talk and encourage them and let them know that we love them and that they can trust us and we're there to take care of them. And she went back to her room and left the donuts on her nightstand, didn't eat them. She came to the lectures the next day, um, learned some information, uh, had an opportunity to, um, you know, experience that food can actually be good. You know, she had a really good breakfast and a delicious lunch and it wasn't as bad as she expected. It wasn't just a, a bowl of nuts and twigs and green lettuce. And she, uh, she went back and decided she was going to throw her donuts away. And so she threw them in the garbage can. And she later recounted to us, and this is the power of food, that every time she walked past that garbage can, she was tempted to reach in and grab a donut. But it was only the fear of being caught or having you know, powdered sugar on her lips that, that prevented her from doing that. But eventually, when the garbage was taken out and thrown away, she gained freedom from the power of donuts. And at the end of the week, after going through some detox and under, understanding the power of food addiction, she was free and she was able to make a lasting uh, lifestyle change. Um, but I think in some settings, um, for people that are really struggling, that week away provides a safe week for them to break some of the food addictions and overcome some of the emotional eating, uh, much like Mylan did during that week that, um, that we shared together. Right now, in Mylan's story, uh, the the key player is uh, Sean Stevenson, right? Who's a, a clinical right. psychologist who has an amazing life story. He was born with brittle bones. He's about three feet tall. Um, how how did you decide to bring him in to the immersion? Yes, I think that um, you know early on we recognized that people needed um, inspiration. And they also needed to go through some emotional healing. Uh, one of the um, really uh, amazing things that we have seen with food is that, you know, it is so cl closely tied to our emotions. It is tied to, you know, um, the pain that we have felt physically, the pain that we have felt emotionally. And when you look at sugar, fat, and salt, they work on the same receptors in the brain where Percocet and Vicodin and Valium work, pain medications, anti-anxiety medications. And so people, you know, in those situations will often use food to pacify their pain, um, but it really ultimately hinders them from making a lifestyle change. And Mylan, in fact, had shared this, that he had lost 100 pounds multiple times on diets 
but it was that deep emotional pain that he carried that always caused him to go back into those foods, the processed foods and the sugar-based foods, to treat his emotional pain, and that would, you know, reignite his food addiction and and perpetuate this kind of eating cycle that would cause him to regain weight. And so we saw that, um, you know, Sean had a piece of the puzzle that could really help people overcome some of their emotional burdens. He was, you know, because of his life and his story, he was very skilled um, at drawing people out and allowing them to feel safe in, in dealing with some of those emotional burdens. And that's, in fact, what happened when, you know, he challenged Mylan to come and, and talk about some of those things that, um, that uh, Mylan had been dealing with. And Mylan, I think, as he had told the story, um, you know, found himself standing at the microphone and wasn't quite sure how he got there and shared the story of his unresolved um, bitterness, anger, resentment towards his mother, and then guilt that he didn't resolve that before she passed away. And that night, after sharing that and choosing to forgive himself and forgive his mother, that emotional burden was taken off. And he says he released that heavy backpack. And then as he likes to say, you know, having released that emotional burden allowed him to release now over 300 pounds. And uh, so you know, we found, found that Sean was a, you know, a critical aspect in, in helping Mylan and others uh, overcome those emotional burdens. That's beautiful. So the other thing I wanted to to talk with you about is before we started recording, you mentioned a really exciting project um, with the with the Rodale Institute. Right? Can you, can you yes. share that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and it's you know it kind of grew out of this. Um, you know, I'm always asking myself questions, and I think that's um, something that my parents taught me, and it's been so valuable to you know always ask a question about why you're doing what you're doing. And even around plant-based nutrition, I started to ask myself questions like, you know, uh, this is what I'm eating, but where did it come from? And why is that important? And it led me down these roads of trying to understand how food was grown and the consequences of growing food conventionally versus organically and asking the questions, is organic food really better for us than conventional food? And um, I started to develop out of asking these questions, a vision for creating a health education center on a farm that would demonstrate to people by science um, the power of the food on their plate and that the choices that they make to put food on their plate influences and impacts so many different aspects of their life and uh, the future generations. So um, I happened to be uh, attending a organic farming conference uh, several years ago. It's about three years ago now. I took one of my sons and I thought it would be an important thing for me to try and understand how healthy soil creates healthy plants and answer the question, does organic food really make a healthier body? And um, I was there watching the lectures and one of the lecturers was the executive director of the Rodale Institute, which is about 45 minutes from my house. And the Rodale Institute is the leader in organic farming in the world. And they have done more to advocate for farming organically and demonstrating the science of organic farming um, and demonstrating that when somebody farms the land organically with cover crops, that in fact it's equal to and in many cases better in yield and, um, and financial production than conventional farming on top of a host of other um, aspects. And they coined the term regenerative agriculture. And so um, I saw Jeff Moyer giving a lecture I went back home and on Monday, 
I was treating a patient and I realized that this was his wife. And I had said to her, I was at this organic farming conference and she said, well, that's ironic because next week my husband's coming to see you for his rotator cuff injury. So uh, Jeff came in to see me for his rotator cuff injury. I shared with him my vision about this health education center on a farm. And he got so excited, he presented it to the board at Rodale. And they asked me to come present my idea to the board of directors. And um, it really ignited kind of a new vision for Rodale to start proving what um, one of the, uh, the founder of Rodale had written on a blackboard. And he wrote on a blackboard at the, the initial um, concept of the Rodale farm, he had written healthy soil equals healthy plant equals healthy person. And then his son later added healthy world. And so our vision for the, the education center is to to prove the science between those equal signs, healthy soil equals healthy plant and healthy plant equals healthy person and how all of those decisions about what we put on our plate and where it comes from influence our planet and the inheritance that we're leaving to our future generations. Wow. See, I find that so inspiring because I have, I've been living in tension in the nexus of the plant-based world and what you call the regenerative agriculture world, which is also sort of known as permaculture, right? <laughs> this, yes. this idea that That's systems right. can work together. And, uh, you know, all the, the founders of permaculture, um, you know, Bill Mollison and uh, um, Dave Holmgren, um, basically, you know, made fun of vegetarians and vegetarianism for being, you know, sort of sentimentalist and, and unrealistic. Um, you know, there's all this stuff about, you know, like if you look at any of the, the permaculture journals, it's like artisanal cheese making and, and how chickens yes. can, can help. Um, it's only been very recently that I've discovered um, sort of permaculturalists or regenerative agriculturalists who are also veganic, who are seeing, I think, a much bigger picture in terms of... Um, inputs and outputs and, and true sustainability. Um, what, you know, how did, how did, when you started talking to the, to the Rodale folks, how did you help them move to the, you know, seeing that plants are maybe more of an answer than, than the kind of animal agriculture that uh, has been promoted for so long? Yeah, and I think there's a lot of similarities to plant-based medicine and, um, you know, what's often talked about in the plant-based circles of the idea of reductionism and compartmentalization in healthcare. That in healthcare, we have, you know, reduced things down to, you know, single diseases, single receptors, compartmentalized them and tried to, to find solutions to fix the one problem. And I think we've seen the same thing in the agricultural world, even in the concept of regenerative agriculture, they've become so fixated on just regenerating the soil um, that they, you know, find solutions um, to fix the soil. And, you know, in that process of looking for solutions to fix the soil, you know, you end up having cows. And so you drink the milk and make cheese and, you know, become kind of mired in that, uh, that uh, you know, confusion of reductionism. But when you step out and you start looking much more holistically, you know, far beyond, you know, just the soil and the power of the choice that we make to put, you know, types of food on our plate and how that looks, not just in our own lives, our own little farm um, or our own community and nation, but how it looks globally and how then it looks globally 20 or 30 years from now. And you start 
you know, moving those pieces into place and looking at the bigger picture, we can begin to see that regenerative agriculture really only works when it is is stimulating a whole food plant-based diet. Um, and in that way, it provides more than enough food for the planet. Um, it provides for the humane treatment of animals. It provides for uh, healthy food for all. Uh, it provides for optimal land management and water management. It provides for regeneration of land that has been um, under um, animal hoof for you know decades and has been destroyed. It removes pesticides and toxins from the environment. Uh, it allows people to be regenerated. It allows healthcare to be regenerated. So it becomes a comprehensive solution <clears throat> for everything that is touched by you know, the food that is on the plate. Um, and I think when I started to present that at the Rodale Institute, it kind of awakened in them uh, a greater sense that, you know, this is far bigger than we even had anticipated on our organic farm. And it's ignited a greater vision for them. And now, you know, people at Rodale that didn't talk about plant-based diets are talking about plant-based diets and the benefits of plant-based diets and reducing, you know, consumption of animal and animal-based products. And so it's really exciting to see how that's pushing in to that regenerative agriculture. And I know there's going to be points of resistance, but I'm really excited to see, you know, how this this greater view of the food on our plate begins to transform some of the conversations in regenerative agriculture. Right. And I guess you're, you're not too far from Ron Weiss, right? Yes. Yeah. Ron is about maybe an hour away. Good friend of mine has a similar vision and we have some wonderful uh, conversations. Right. I mean, and the, the other person who has just blown me away, are, are you familiar with Will Bonsall? I am not. No, I will have to look that up. Oh, I'll, I'll send you a link to the interview I did with him. I, I heard of him through Amy Hamlin, who is the, you know, the director of Healthy, Healthy School Lunches, the New York um, advocacy yes. group for, for healthy food. She had him come to a, a conference, and I, I watched the YouTube of that and was utterly blown away. He has a book called Will Bonsall's, I think it's Guide to, uh, to Radical Self-Reliant Gardening, and it's, uh, it's veganic, and he, he is an amazing farmer and philosopher of, of like true regeneration. Wow, fantastic. Thank you for that. I'm, I just pulled him up on my computer here, and I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to buy his book. That looks very interesting. He, he is a hoot. <laughs> that is great. Uh, I really enjoy learning from people like that. Yeah. So what's, what's the vision of the, uh, of the Institute farm? When, 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 will, when will I be able to go there? When can people start learning from it? And what do you think the curriculum will be? Yeah, our vision is uh, to open in 2019. And uh, the vision is that it will serve um, probably many purposes. One is it's a, a point of connection. Sometimes when you build a brick and mortar structure and there's a place where people can meet, we envision um, hosting you know, conferences, uh, conversations, lectures, um, get get-togethers and parties that will bring people into, you know, um, a sphere of influence that are not usually in conversation. <clears throat> From the highest levels, you know, the USDA and the FDA, they never have conversations uh, to physicians and farmers and healthcare um, executives and local farmers uh, to media and, you know, people of influence to start having uh, this greater conversation about the influence of the food that we put on our plate and how, um, you know, we all can work together. 
to to bring about change and transformation of the plate and and every aspect of uh, of that um, connection that is influenced by those decisions. We also want the center itself to be educational, <clears throat> you know, even down to the uh, the septic system. <clears throat> There's a, a septic system called a wetlands that is uh, re uh, regenerative in nature. And so even when people are going to the bathroom, we want them to learn something and to see that there's a better way to regenerate water and recycle water and regenerate land. You know, it's going to be as, as green as possible. We're going to farm um, on the roof. We'll have, you know, gardens on the roof. It's going to be, you know, um, uh, energetically neutral, if not, re you know, generating electricity. We're going to try and make every aspect of the center um, educational. We want people to come and experience um, both, you know, the kind of um, high touch aspects of organic farming, but also to not miss the as the um, the aspect that, you know, organic farming doesn't have to just be, you know, uh, you know, two horses and a plow, but we can use technology to farm organically and provide, you know, more than enough food for people that they're not um, they're not mutually exclusive, that uh, high-tech and organic farming actually can work together to provide a, a better solution. So we want a high-tech, uh, high-touch type center. You know, we'll have um, screens that will educate people. We'll have Biotron walls where you can see the roots growing down into healthy soil and watch the little earthworms wriggle through the soil and teach people about those things. We'll have indoor-outdoor cooking kitchens, uh, allowing children to come and and um, harvest the food and cook a healthy, you know, uh, plant-based pizza and, and understand that whole process of growing and harvesting and cooking. And uh, we just want it to be a place of inspiration, that people come and they see something different than, and they think something different than they've ever saw or thought before. And it changes the decisions that they make and then they become a sphere of influence when they go home. Wow, I'm so excited by that vision. Uh I'll, I'll talk to you offline, offline about how I can get involved because I'm I'm just uh, tingling uh, with the, oh, uh, the, the, the nexus of those, of those two loves of mine of, uh, you know, regenerative ecological agriculture and, uh, and healthy plant-based food. It is really exciting. And I'm sure as, as you have studied and understand the future of our, our planet and the soil is really dependent upon how we grow our food today. And if, when we transition over to, you know, um, uh, organic farming with a, a covering on the soil, we will stop the loss of topsoil. We will regenerate the, uh, the soil. We will prevent the further loss of nutrients from the soil. Um, I mean, it, it's incredible that what happens when we just simply transition um, and change the way we grow our food and and uh, and process the food. Right. One of my favorite permaculture teachers, who's not yet plant based, but I have hopes, is Jeff Lawton, who says uh, yes. all the world's problems can be solved in a garden. Yes, isn't it true? <laughs> it is really true, and it's so interesting how we even regenerate our microbiome while we're in the garden farming. You know that we inhale those uh, natural soil organisms and it revitalizes the microbiome in our gut. And even that process, you know, produces serotonin and allows us to feel happy while we're in the garden. It's incredible that, that you know, we're connected to the soil in so many profound ways. Right. I remember one, one of the things I heard was that uh, the word human is the, the root of it is humus. Yes, so. that is exactly right.
That's right. And the more that we study, in fact, I, I um, one of my desires in the next year or two is to write a book with um, Jeff Moyer, the executive director at Rodale, comparing the human and the hummus and agriculture and healthcare and the chemical agriculture world and the pharmaceutical uh, part of healthcare and then pointing back to the same solution, which is a uh, whole food plant-based um, nutrition and regenerative agriculture. Right. And, you know, and it's funny, like the, there are so many linguistic clues for this, not just in, in English, but, you know, in Hebrew, the word for man is Adam and the word for soil or land is Adama. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm sure yes. most most cultures understood this and, and we're we're just sort of shaking off our our reductionism and coming back to this this obvious insight. Yes, I, that is it's very, very true. And um, I always encourage people that, you know, wherever you are to grow something, you know, even if it's a small little uh, window garden growing herbs for your food, that act of growing something in the soil changes, you know, who we are and it connects us to the environment in a very different way. We're grateful for the sunshine. We're grateful for the rain. We experience the joy of seeing something grow. We, we see the rewards of tending something and, and harvesting it and using it. Um, it, it conjures uh, a new level of gratitude in people and a new level of connection um, to the environment. And I think it makes us uh, more aware and more conscious of the decisions that we make on a daily basis. Mm, that's beautiful. So before I let you go, how can folks follow you, find out more about you, uh, stay in touch and learn from you. Yes, thank you, Howard. So, um, you know, uh, one place where I've tried to to kind of localize everything that I'm doing is drscottstoll.com. And you can find out there about the Plantrition Project, which is plantritionproject.org. Um, our healthcare conference, uh, the Plant-Based Nutrition Healthcare Conference, pbnhc.com. Our health immersions or changeimmersions.com, and we're doing um, a three-day change immersion in Phoenix, uh, February 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. You know, Mylan, myself, and my partner, Tom Dunham, are putting on a, um, a nice three-day kind of get 2018 started right health conference. Um, the books that we've written, The Change, Mylan and I, you can find on Amazon. And Mylan and I just came out with a cookbook, Things That We Enjoy as Families. Um, that's changecookbook.com. And... Um, you know, it's uh, we're always happy to connect with people. I love communicating with people. And uh, it's my desire to just help bring transformation both here and abroad uh, through plant based nutrition. Gotcha. So I'll, I'll include all those links in the show notes for today's episode. But for folks who are not going to get to the website, Dr. Scott Stoll, is that DR or D-O-C-T-O-R? Um, it is D-R, S-C-O-T-T-S-T-O-L-L dot com. And that's the that's the clearinghouse for uh, all those connections. So it's an easy place to go to connect out to all of the different things that we're doing. Gotcha. Well, Dr. Scott Stoll, I'm, I'm so happy to talk to you. I'm so happy to hear your your story, your sort of beautiful, loving, caring voice and energy behind it and to hear about all the amazing things uh, that you're, you've, you've leapt into, like like you leapt into bobsledding and how uh, <laughs> how the world is becoming a, a better and better place because of it. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Well, Howard, thank you so much. It has been such a blessing and I've done lots of podcasts and I just want to compliment you on um, 
on, you know, your really deep probing questions that draw information out and I think are a real asset to this podcast and and uh, bring forth information that is um, that really changes and touches people's lives. So I appreciate you and I, I thank you for that amazing skill that you have and for sharing that with all of us. Well, thank you and, and be well. Thank you. You too. And happy Thanksgiving. Thanks, Howard. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Well, thank you, Howard. That was amazing. I really, really enjoyed that. Oh, good. I mean, I try, I try not to torture my guests too much. No, you do such a nice job of leading the conversation and drawing information out and not just going to the, you know, the easy next question. So I really appreciate that. Thank you. You, you really do an amazing job. You're very talented, and it makes it fun, I think, for your guests. Well, thanks, thanks. And um, unfortunately, I have a call in two minutes, so I can't, I can't ask you all the things I wanted to ask you offline. But I, <laughs> I'll email you. I would love to be involved in the in the the road out in the regenerative project. Oh, that would that, be great. I, it would be great to have you involved. And you know, I'm just thinking maybe um, like an advisory board. I mean, there's lots of things that we can do. So. We would love to have your, your knowledge and experience. Fantastic. All right. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll connect with you offline and we can, we can continue the conversation. I look forward to it, Howard. Thank you so much. God bless you. Have a great Thanksgiving. Thank you. You too, Scott. Thanks. And good, good luck with the bluegrass, Thanks. boys. All right. Thank you, Howard. I'll talk to you very soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. And if you don't know how, go to plantyourself.com slash review. And I'm, I put together a one-minute video along with a link where you can go right to iTunes and leave that review. Like this five-star review left by Jay Barshop on December 4th. And the headline is, Awesome Show Highly Recommend. Howard and his guests, Jay Barshop writes, provide some incredibly compelling content that's geared to help you take actionable steps to live a healthier, more well-rounded life. Highly recommend listening and subscribing to the Plant Yourself podcast if you want the knowledge and mindsets to improve your body, mind, and spirit and live your best life as a result. Thank you, Jay Barshop. And if you'd like more information about the Big Change Program led by me and Josh Lajani, visit BigChangeProgram.com. Looks like we'll have another run going in February, so we will be offering that in January. Keep a lookout in your email and on the podcast for details. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to everything we talked about at PlantYourself.com slash 244. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 243 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. If you get the podcast but not the Big Change Bulldog, my weekly-ish newsletter, you can sign up and also get the Sabotage Report, the Stop Sabotage Report, the Stop Self-Sabotage Report at plantyourself.com slash sabotage. In garden news, there's not really any garden news. This is one of those weeks when there's really nothing to do. So we're sitting indoors with different catalogs. I found a catalog that I absolutely fell in love with. It's called rareseeds.com. I've been, I've been leafing through it and uh, trying not to salivate over the pages. And it turns out that the owners of the company actually have a vegan cookbook. So uh, I started looking into them a little bit more. And maybe I'll see if I can reach out and have them as guests on the show because the catalog is beautiful and the mission of bringing back all these hundreds and hundreds of 
of species, of varieties, of, of plants that are delicious to eat and just aren't commercially viable to transport and uh, grow in large quantities in monocultures. It's, uh, it's something that we should all be concerned about. In running news, I did a very satisfying 17 yesterday. It's really, really cold out. My, my fingers and toesies are uh, complaining. And I've also uh, started going to a men's workout group at 5.30 or 5.45 in the morning. The group is called F3 for Fitness, Fellowship, and Faith. It's really interesting. I'm learning a lot, not just about what it's like to get up at 5 in the morning and go work out before the sun comes up, but also the mechanisms of creating a movement. It's, uh, so if you go to F3, the number 3, F3Nation.com, you can see what they're all about. Um, I'm pretty picky, and I tend to be querulous and uh, obstreperous, and I've really not found anything in this men's-only group that, uh, that really rubs me the wrong way, which is a, a very good sign. So I'll let you know how that goes. In the meantime, I'm doing my uh, burpees and sherpees and crunches and push-ups on the cold asphalt very, very early in the mornings, in addition to all the running. All right, it's time for the thanks, starting with Will, Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use Sabali Don, the Dance of Peace, as the theme music for this podcast. Check out willridenauer.com for more of his Chora music. And of course, thanks to all you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. I added four more, so we'll see if this is still a two-breath thank or if I have to go into three. Here we go. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara, Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Havily, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barron, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Volkanovsky, David Bizek, Mysterious, Michelle X, Elton, Victoria, Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julianne Rollins, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Fronsek, Jeanette Benham, Gila Sarah David Donahue, Blair Seibert, Dorona, Vizo, Gio, and Karen Largentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Thunderbrook, Misha Rosen, Michael Borabeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole... Nicole Ramsey, Susan Allen, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corker, and Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, a plant, Happy Oregon, Sabine Kersels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Shell Ruthless, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Rolls, Linda Ayat, Julie Langholm, Hedekard, Isa Tizinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Aviva Lael, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Orlikowski of Plant Power for Health, and Karen Smith for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends.